0: Well, as you know, we're looking at this book, War of Words, and we're uh, talking about communication. But uh, like I said last time, we're also really talking about how to change and how to help other people change and how to disciple and how to counsel others, uh, which is part of why I love this book, because uh, Paul Tripp, the person who wrote this book, was a biblical counselor and an author. He actually... My dad was... uh, a counselor at the same center where uh, Paul Tripp counseled a long time ago. And he's written a lot. And uh, one of my favorite books that he's written besides War of Words is called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, and they're both back there, actually. Um, And we're using Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands uh, for our SPIRE class, the leadership training class, because that's a book on counseling. But it's fun for me to read these two books together Uh, Because in the one book, he's talking about just how do you help somebody change in general. And then in this book on communication, it's kind of like we're seeing uh, how he would go about it in practice with a specific problem. Uh, So what would it look like to take uh, these principles about counseling or discipleship and apply it to people who are having problems with communication? And you remember, of course, he begins by helping us understand why the way we speak matters. And uh, when we're trying to help someone, we can't assume that they know why it matters. I think it's important to remember that even as you disciple or as you parent, you can't assume that people appreciate why certain issues matter so much. And so that's always a good place to start when you're, even when you're thinking about a problem in your own life, it's good to make sure that you understand why does this matter? Because sometimes, honestly, we're concerned about problems that aren't problems in the Bible, like we'll feel ashamed or upset about something, and then we'll think about it and look at the scripture and we'll realize that's not even a sin that I'm ashamed of. It's just a human weakness or uh, something like that. But then there are other things that we should be concerned about that we're not as concerned about, and so it's good to go back and say, why does this matter to God? And when we talk about uh, communication, uh, this ultimately fits into the category of right or wrong, which is uh, different than how a non-Christian would talk about communication. If somebody came in for uh, counseling to a non-Christian counselor, it would be difficult for them to address this topic as if it were right and wrong, because they don't have a standard outside of themselves. And so it's really mostly about what works or what doesn't work, or how can you speak in a way that gets what you want or not. But We do have a standard because we know God created the world and he created everything good, and so there's a way we're supposed to speak and there's a way we're not supposed to speak, which means uh, that when we talk about communication, it's really important for us to remember we're talking about something bigger than just what works or what doesn't work, and that God ultimately is going to be our standard, not my opinion or anyone else's. When I think about the way that I speak or the way that I'm talking to my wife or talking to my family or talking to the people around me, This is not just about what's effective or how I like to talk. This is about what does God want? What does God want? And then second, he explains why the way we communicate is such a significant issue and how speech goes wrong. So uh, when you're discipling and trying to help somebody with a problem, it's good to go back and be like, "Okay, do we understand why this matters to God and then Do we understand uh, why it matters so much? And uh, this, unfortunately, is one you have to do a lot of motivation for when it comes to uh, communication, because I think most people coming to church understand that it's right or wrong. They get that. But it still doesn't feel weighty when you talk to people about their everyday speech. I don't think for a lot of people this feels like a weighty issue. And so they don't think of the way that they talk in their home to their wife. They don't think about the way that they talk uh, at work. They don't think of this as a significant issue in their life, either for good or for bad. So I was talking to someone recently, and he was feeling like he really wanted to do big things for God, but it wasn't working out the way that he wanted. And I asked him, do you have a mouth? I'm like, you have a mouth. You realize your mouth can be a tree of life. You can it's like a fountain of life. Wherever you go, you can go spurting life on everyone. That means you have the potential, no matter whether you are in a big position or a small position, you have the position, you have the potential to to do powerful things for God just by talking to the people around you. So sometimes people don't realize why this is such an important issue for good, but a lot of times they don't understand why it's such a important issue for bad either why it's why it's such a problem and 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 so to help us understand the significance of communication and you have to do this sometimes when you're counseling like you got to motivate like no this really matters this re- do you understand why this matters um, even as you parent your children uh, it's sometimes it's good to ask them if if they're having a problem why is this a problem because you think they know why it's a problem but sometimes they don't know why it's a problem and so trip takes us back to the fall And he shows us that Satan used speech as a weapon against God and his people from the beginning. And so we're involved in this war that's bigger than us, and the way we can communicate either can advance Satan's cause or Christ. So imagine that. The way I speak can advance Satan's cause or Christ every day. And uh, Proverbs makes that clear. Your speech can make sin look attractive to others. It can rescue somebody from danger. It can add, your speech can literally add years to somebody's life, like literal years because of the way you talk. It can help someone be exalted and honored. It can make someone an abomination to God the way they speak. Imagine God uh, being an abomination to God, and you say, why? Well, the way that you talk. It can be life to someone else. It can cause someone to lose knowledge. It can ensnare somebody, it can protect someone from temptation, it can enable someone to be blessed, it can cause someone to be ruined. And so we see this really is a significant issue. But one thing I thought was interesting was the way Tripp described what speech often does, because it's easy to miss. Because what speech does is interpret. Uh, Speech interprets, either rightly or wrongly, when you communicate with someone else, you're often providing an interpretation. Um not just you're not just talking about the facts but you're giving an interpretation of those facts so you remember when satan spoke uh he asked has god said and so this is what's really going on um he's and what he's doing is he's looking at the data and he's offering a different interpretation than than god's god was doing this for their good satan says no he's doing this not for your good and we're, we, when we speak to others, one of the reasons why our everyday speech is so significant is because we're often offering up interpretations without realizing we're offering up interpretations. And those other people are acting on the basis of those interpretations. And a lot of times the interpretations we're offering are not true. So, and we just don't even realize, last night we were talking to somebody about sports. I was thinking about this, about kids in sports. You know, we were talking about, um, what's that thing with baseball where you uh, where you go places travel baseball and he was talking about how much time this takes up like three days a week or something three hours a pop and he said I said oh, I wonder how many of those kids actually play in university and they were like well hardly any of them ever play in university but that doesn't matter because it's good and then he gave reasons why he thinks it's good like they're gonna learn discipline And all this stuff. And I thought to myself, like all those professional baseball players are so obviously demonstrations of great character. But um, he gave his reasons and I gave mine against. But the point is, it was so quick and both of us were giving interpretations. It wasn't just the data that we were talking about. We were talking about interpretations of the data. Like, I, he gave his interpretation of the data. Travel baseball is good because it teaches kids discipline. I gave my interpretation of the data. I don't actually, I'm not sure about that. But we're both given interpretations. And it happens so quick and we don't always realize that it's actually interpretations that we're being given, not just a set of facts. So we often give interpretations to our speech and then we get them from others And we give them to others without even thinking about it how often do we pass on an interpretation and we've never stopped and thought is that actually true or is that does that line up with what the scripture teaches and that's powerful it's really powerful and it's helpful to acknowledge like a lot of times what you're saying is not facts it's interpretations of the facts and you feel like it's facts but it's interpretations of the facts so I was listening to someone talk about how to help teams work together well, and they, said they used a helpful illustration, which they called the ladder of inference. But they were just saying something similar to what Tripp was saying. And so they talk about, there's all this observable data that's out there. And when we speak, what we're often doing is we select from the data that we observe, a certain set of data, and then we interpret the data, we give meaning to the data, And then we make assumptions based on our interpretation, and then we draw conclusions, and then often we share those conclusions with others, believing that they're facts, and in reality, we're providing an interpretation for them that's going to impact the way they look at the world and make decisions. So maybe you have a guy named Jack, and he's responsible for leadership on a team, And as he's trying to exercise that leadership, there's one person on the team that comes to him several times, and he's like, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it this way? And he kind of has a a facial expression that, uh, that looks serious. And the next time the person comes to the meeting, that person has talked to someone else on the team, and as Jack is about to lead the meeting, they both ask, why are you doing it this way? But Jack doesn't understand why they're asking the question, because to him it seems obvious why he's doing it that way, and he feels like they look a little upset as they're asking it, and so he's bothered that they would have problems with the way he's leading because he thinks he's just trying to do his best to help the team move forward. Plus the ideas he's sharing he feels are so obvious it doesn't make sense that anyone would have questions about them. And so going home, he decides, you know what? These guys are just not paying attention, and they don't want improvement in this area. And so you know what? He's not even going to try to help. And he opens the door up and he says to his wife, you won't believe the way these guys are treating me. But what's he done? He's jumped all the way from observation to conclusions and is now providing a conclusion for whoever he's talking to. So, and it makes it very tricky to have a conversation because he's so sure that conclusion is a fact. And he talks about that conclusion as if it were a fact, but it's really just an interpretation. He doesn't even realize what he's done is he's selected certain information. He's given his own meaning to it. He's assumed things without following up and investigating. And now he's not just sharing facts, but his interpretation of the facts with others. And, of course, that's happening all the time, And sometimes it makes it very hard to communicate because we're both doing it without realizing it. And it also makes our speech dangerous if we're providing these interpretations to others that aren't based on reality. So there's right and wrong. The way we speak is significant. And by this point, hopefully, Trip has got us thinking about the way we communicate, which we're trying to do as we disciple. We're like, please pay attention to this issue. I see this issue in your life. Please pay attention to it. This is what the issue is. And once people do, once we begin paying attention to issues in our lives, Trip knows that we're, we're going to see the problem goes deeper than we imagine. So we have to help people see why it's a problem, why it's a significant problem. But once they do see that it's a significant problem, you need to realize that. Uh, they're gonna be tempted to become hopeless. And so he wants to give hope as as he writes this book, but he wants to make sure that we put our hope in the right place. And so this is really important. Once somebody sees a problem for what it is, and a lot of times when they're coming to you for counseling, they're coming because they've seen that they have a problem. There's two different ways that are tempting for them to respond. One way that's tempting for them to respond is to be hopeless. And that's a problem. If you're hopeless about a problem, uh, it's going to be difficult to overcome it. Like if you're like, I just can't change. This is the way it is. So they need hope. But there's another problem. Sometimes once you've realized you have a problem, you put your hope in the wrong place. And so you quickly go from I have a problem to how can I fix this? And you start focusing on, well, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to do this. I need to do that. And subtly, the danger is we can put our hopes in our own efforts. Like, if I just work hard enough, I'm going to be able to change this. And if we do put our hopes in our own efforts, we're going to be disappointed because our problems with communication are not simply a matter of ignorance or lack of training. I always think of this when it comes to conflict because, like, I've read so many books on conflict. I've taught classes on conflict. But still, when I get into conflict, it's still so tempting and hard for me to do the right thing. I would still much rather run away or, not, or just not deal with it or ignore, even if I totally know that's not what God's calling me to do. And so that reminds me that this is not just a problem with like, hey, I need more information, there's something bigger going on here. And what's bigger, what is bigger that's going on with our communication is the fact that we are sinners and we're part of a spiritual war. We have an enemy, so we need supernatural help. And we, the good news is we do have supernatural help because Jesus came. And that's not just words. Practically, if we're going to grow in the way we communicate or help others grow in the way they communicate, we need to rely on him. So part of our job So when people come for counsel, a lot of times what they want are answers, like, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. And you're going to frustrate them sometimes as a biblical counselor, because you're going to say, it's not just about me telling you what to do. What what needs to happen is you need to go to Jesus, depend on him, and develop a deeper relationship with him. And that's not like just a a three-step process. And that's part of maybe why the Lord's allowing even this problem to come into your life, because he he wants to force you to learn how to depend on him to do what you absolutely cannot do. Um, And we can depend on him with joy because he's given us the resources we need. And so knowing there's hope, the question is, where do we start now? That's how he's doing this. Like, okay, now I'm trying to give somebody hope. The hope's not in you, your efforts. The hope's in, in, in Jesus and the resources he's provided. We want you to depend on him. And they're thinking, well, okay, that's good. Where do we start if I'm going to change the way that I communicate? And this is funny. This is, it's actually really hard to change the way you communicate in general. If you think, I was listening to some people recently. I'm like, if you've been around people for a long time, it's pretty funny if you're paying attention how we all have ruts. And it's like, one, two, three, wait for it, boom. Like, they're going to say that. You can, start to, you can start to just almost know how people are going to speak because people, some of us have such deep ruts in our minds almost or in our habits that it's just like, okay, this, this comes up, wait for it, there we go. You know, that, that, that's, what's gonna, that's what that guy's going to say. That's what that guy's going to say because we just... We just talk the way we talk for so long. So it's hard to change where we're going to talk, how we talk, especially if we're talking sinfully. And so um, Trip knows that the temptation for us is to try to just change on the surface. And with a subject like communication, we might think, give me a list, you know, like tell me to stop saying this or start saying that or count to 10 and, and we need to get there, of course, but first, the problem, if we're really going to change, it's not going to be just a list. If we're going to change, we're going to have to deal with what's going on in our heart. That's the way we get out of ruts. Like, our heart has to change. And so he takes us to Luke 6 to illustrate that, and, he, and, and Luke 6 talks about this concept of a root and fruit. It's a metaphor that Jesus uses to help us understand how we work. Luke 6, 43 to 35. This is all review, but you know how I do it. I'm in a rut. (laughs) My rut is spend half the time talking about what we talked about. But Luke 6, 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of his heart the mouth speaks. And so we don't like this illustration. Um, But Jesus is saying that our fruit reveals our root. So the way we speak reveals what's in our hearts. So, kids, when we talk to you about the way we speak and the way you speak, one of the reasons we're so serious about that is because it it's actually we're talking about what's going, what it reveals about what's going on in your heart. And so if we have bad fruit, then ultimately if we're going to change, we can't just staple on good fruit. We've got to deal with the root. And um, at this point, Tripp starts talking about idolatry because that's the bad root Jesus is talking about. We have problems with communication because we've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of a creature. And that's intense, but we've got to get there. If we're going to change or help others change, we have, to, we have to talk about, okay, what does your communication uh, reveal about who you really worship? And to deal with the root, we have to start at the basics. And where trip starts is with the doctrine of God. So he says, if you're going to communicate in a way that honors God, you have to first stop and think about who really is God in your life. So, you know, sometimes people are like, I can't do counseling, it's so complicated, and it is hard, but a lot of the stuff that people are dealing with you don't it's it's you got to go back to these basics like who actually is God to you so it's not like some complicated math problem (laughs) it's like I do you really know who God is and this was a couple weeks ago but we talked about God's sovereignty and tried to apply the doctrine of God's sovereignty to the way we communicate if God really is God he's in control he's in charge And there's some specific ways that believing that should impact the way we speak, because a lot of times the problems we have with speech is that we're trying to be God. We're trying to control others, or we're just not resting in the fact that God actually is good, and he's working all things together for good, and so we're freaking out, and it's coming out in the way we speak. And now we're in chapter 6. That's finally all that to get to chapter 6, which is the part of the book we're in. Since communications has to do with the heart and it has to do with worship, that means it also has to do with who we love. So basically, as we think about the way we talk or we try to help someone else with the way they communicate, we have to ask two questions. First, do we believe God is God? And then second, do we love God being God? Do we believe God is God or do we think we're God? And then second, do we actually love God being God? And again, this is part of what makes the way we talk so important because how you talk reveals who you love. How you talk reveals who you love. So if you follow me around and you look at my daily interactions and you record my daily interactions, my everyday speech, not just when I'm up here talking, hopefully that's part of it because this is real, this is just me talking, but also Uh, my everyday interactions, when I talk to Isaiah, when I talk to Marta, when I uh, just am at the Starbucks, you know, talking to somebody, if you could record my everyday speech in the car as I'm driving, my everyday speech to myself in the car as I'm driving, you should get an idea of who I really love. Um, And to illustrate that, Tripp starts the chapter with a story. Maybe you remember it. I'll read it for you. But he says, I sat with him in his living room, "'struck by the things he was saying. "'It was not that I hadn't heard this kind of thing before, "'but he spoke with such strength of feeling "'it had come out at the end of a day "'when Jeff's two young children "'seemed to make an unending chorus of whining demands. "'His job seemed to only take more and more out of him, "'and he and his wife weren't exactly "'feeling appreciative of one another. "'He dropped his body down on the couch "'and he stared for a while at the floor. "'You could almost see Jeff steaming. "'Then he said, why do I do it? "'What's it all worth?' All the years of Bible study and prayer, all the times I've gone to church, I struggle to do what's right, and what do I get? A life that's impossible. People say, just trust the Lord. For what? He doesn't answer. He doesn't care. I just blew it. I shouldn't have gotten married. I should never have had children. I can't handle this job, and God just sits up there and lets it all happen. So I'm a Christian. What good has it done me? I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed with my responsibilities, and I see no way out but if I leave all this, I get punished. What's wrong with this picture? And then he says, I was not the only person to hear Jeff talk this way. The same discontent spilled over into his daily communication with his wife and children. In a steady stream of complaints, irritation, impatient, accusation, and sometimes even threats, I tried to gently respond, but Jeff was angry and unwilling to hear me. He hadn't really been talking to me anyway. It was a moment of brutal honesty that I just happened to witness. Jeff's angry words revealed a great deal about the true thoughts and desires of his heart. Underneath the neat-looking, everything's-fine-with-me exterior that people saw at Sunday worship was a man whose heart was at war with God. Jeff had followed the king, and it hadn't turned out the way he had expected. As we've noted from Luke 6, the word we speak come out of our hearts. This means that in some way our talk reveals the true love of our hearts. What was wrong with Jeff's talk was not just the particular words he spoke or the particular tone he used, we wouldn't solve his communication problem by telling him never to say those words again. To see lasting change in Jeff's speech, the doubt and discontent between his words needed to be exposed. We needed to deal with the true love of Jeff's heart. So you, that's so important to understand. Our everyday speech has a lot to do with who we're worshiping. And we've got to get that worship part right. But it's challenging sometimes to get to, especially when you're trying to disciple somebody who's come to church. Because going to church is really great, but sometimes what happens when we come to church is that we verbally confess that we worship Jesus like Jeff does. He's like, I'm a Christian, and he puts on this exterior at church on Sundays that looks good to everybody else. And since we say we believe in God and that we're Christians, we don't always think to look much more closely. And when we have problems with communication, we stay on the surface. And so you can imagine if you're discipling someone in terms of how they communicate, and you're like, well, let's talk about how you're worshiping God or whether you're worshiping God. They're like, that doesn't make sense because I go to church on Sunday, and I'm, I'm why are you even talking about do I worship God? But the point is that it's possible to go to church on Sunday and externally be worshiping God while internally you're worshiping someone else or something else and not even really being aware of it, like Jeff, because we're good at deceiving ourselves. And that's, that's a reality that's definitely going on in Jeff's lives and in our lives sometimes. We say one thing, we believe that's real, and yet if you could look at our hearts, you would see, we're, wow, we're not even we're not believing that. Um, and and that's a, there's another place where Tripp talks about this, and he says, it's amazingly difficult to see ourselves with accuracy. We see other people with a fairly high degree of accuracy, but we don't seem to see ourselves with the same precision. Here are a few I've experienced. I've been yelled at by angry people who angrily defended themselves when I suggested that they struggled with anger. I've had controlling people take over a conversation so they could persuade me how unselfish they were. I've listened to someone boldly proclaim that one of their spiritual strengths was humility. I've watched as vengeful people lived unaware of their constant desire to settle the score with others. I've sat with bitter wives who provided me with a list of ways they thought they were loving their husbands. I've spoken to gyms full of teenagers who said they respected their elders, but actually lived as if they were wiser than the surrounding authorities. I've worked alongside ungracious and legalistic pastors who preached about their commitment to a theology of grace. So self-deception is a real thing, and the Bible talks about it. And that's what's going on with Jeff, because he would say, I'm following Jesus, but you listen to the way he talks, and why is he following Jesus? Why is he following Jesus? It's because he, he, he wants Jesus to be his servant. Um, I think we've talked about it before, how there's like these basically two religions in the world. And uh, one is God's at the center and I am an instrument that he uses for his purposes. And the other is I'm at the center and God and everything else is an instrument that I use for my purposes. And sometimes... We, People say they're Christians, but really they're at the center, and God is what they use, or Jesus is what they use for their own purpose. And sometimes, even as Christians, we go back to to living that way. And certainly, that's what's happening with with Jeff, and sometimes with us. Uh, and uh, Trip, to illustrate this problem, goes to John chapter six. And in John chapter six, you meet a bunch of people who. Um, are excited about Jesus, but Jesus is not excited about why they're excited about him. Um, He, at the beginning of this chapter, feeds the 5,000, and it's just this awesome moment um, where all these people are coming from all over, a large crowd's following him. Um, He goes up on a mountain, he sits down, he he sees them, and he he knows they're hungry, so he says, where are we going to buy bread? And the disciples are like, ah, oh, there's no way we could ever get that much bread to feed all these people, but we do have a couple loaves and a couple fishes, and that's obviously not enough, and yet Jesus takes what they have, and he's able to feed everyone with all these baskets left over. And verse 14, uh, the people are just so excited about this, of course, and John writes, when uh, John 6:14, when the people saw the sign that he had done they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Which you would think would be amazing uh, to Jesus. And uh, they even want to make him king, actually. And we know that's why ultimately he came. He is the king. But what does he do in verse 15? It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so you have to ask, Why? That seems like a strange reaction. Why, when uh, these people are so excited about Jesus, does he try to get away from these people? And uh, we find the answer down in verse 25 of John chapter 6. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They were searching for him, and they finally find him. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And so how does Jesus feel about them wanting to make him king? Not very excited. He ends up rebuking them, and he basically says, you're missing the point, but how are they missing the point? And here's the key that Tripp points out. He says, what was the miracle that Jesus was doing? It was a sign. And what is a sign? A sign is not the thing. It's something that points to something else. And so what was wrong with these people? They weren't seeing what the sign was pointing to. They didn't want what the sign was pointing to. So they experienced the miracle But they didn't see the sign. The physical blessing of bread was meant to point to a much deeper spiritual reality. And Christ said, you're not getting it. And so if they didn't see the sign, what were they so excited about Jesus about? And why did they want to make him king? Tripp says, I do not believe that they pursued Christ out of a humble submission to his Messiahship and a willingness to follow him wherever he would lead. Their pursuit of Christ was born instead out of a love for self and the hope that Christ would be the one who would meet their needs. And this was something so sad that we saw so often in Africa when people were in desperate situations. Um, They often would want to come to Christ because they were hoping for some sort of miracle um, to provide for their physical needs. And uh, they weren't really, I would ask people, why are you excited about Jesus? And they would say, because he's my miracle healer. He's my miracle healer. And uh, they would say that over and over again, and I would try to get them to say something about sin, you know, and the fact that they need a savior and heaven and eternal life and so often it was hard for them to be interested in in, in that and that's definitely what's going on with with Jeff and sometimes with us you know we're not living in in uh, in Africa or something impoverished, but so often um in our relationship with God, we're less interested in God and more interested in um, ourselves and now and what a relationship with God can get us right now. Tripp asks, if you had to write down your dream for your life, what would you write? What would you say is your if only? If I could just have, if God would just give me dot, 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 then I would be happy. Another way to ask the question is, what kind of Messiah do you want Jesus to be in your life? Because the danger, if you think about human, how we work as humans, is we start out life with self at the center and trying to figure out how do we get the whole world to revolve around us. That's basically what a one-year-old is trying to figure out and a two-year-old trying to figure out. Is how do I get this whole family to do my will? Um, they're, they're really not that concerned about um, how mom's sleep patterns or something like that. They're basically concerned about how do I force this whole family to do my will? So we start out life like that. We maybe learn that doesn't always look so good, so we, don't, we, we try to not make it so obvious. But then we come to Jesus, and if we're really saved, we say no to self, but what can happen is that self comes back and, we find, and, and finds a way to still try to be at the center of our lives. Um, and uh, that's definitely what happens with false conversions, people who say they're Christians but, but really aren't. But sometimes it can even happen with us as believers. We exchange the worship of God subtly for the worship of some, someone else, but we don't realize it because we're still going through the motions on the outside. And yet if you listen to us, you can tell what really matters to us by the way we talk, and it's not actually what matters most to Jesus. So this is a so you see what he's trying to do even as he counsels people or helps us counsel people he's trying to get at the core problem like you can't just help jeff by saying okay jeff that's not nice to say about your wife um please stop saying those mean things about your wife because jeff's problem is a lot bigger than that Jeff's problem is that he he's he's jesus he wants jesus to be his slave <laughs> basically and he's he's living for now and so we listen to the way we talk. We have to ask, what does the way I talk say about why I'm following Jesus? Are his priorities really my priorities? And to help us evaluate why we're following Jesus, Trip uses this idea of physical bread versus spiritual bread. That's coming from John 6. So in John 6, they want Jesus to give them physical bread. When Jesus is like, you should be looking for spiritual bread. And he says, this is the struggle. The struggle of physical versus spiritual bread is a core struggle of the Christian life. It's a core struggle of human life. And w- often what we want from God is this physical bread when God wants to do something bigger than that in our lives. So um, when I think about particular situations, it usually shows up in particular situations where there's, if it's not the way you like Sometimes, when I look at that particular situation, honestly, what I would like is for it just to be easy. I would like to be able to come in there and just have it go the way just have not not just have it be easy <laughs> that that is in a sense is what Tripp would say wanting physical bread like I just want it to be i want I want now to be easy and comfortable and Instead, looking at that situation, I should be more, it's not wrong to want it to be comfortable, but I should want something even bigger than just that physical bread. I should want spiritual bread. And what does that mean? I should want what God wants in that situation for me, which is for me to be holy, for me to learn what I need to learn, for me to be able to be used used by him. Um, So like for a kid, when your parents aren't doing what you would like them to do, What's tempting sometimes is to think, ah, man, if only my mom or dad would just be who I want them to be and do what I want them to do. But as a believer, we need to think, well, Ma, God gave me this mom and dad. And so uh, my main goal now should be how to glorify him and what does he want to teach me through this mom and dad. But what makes this struggle difficult is that we're sinners and there's a Satan who's a liar. And one of his big goals is to get us thinking that life is all about physical bread. It's all about now, in other words. And so we're bombarded with this message from birth. Um, we go to school. We're bombarded. It's all about now. It's all about now. And you can see this struggle in many passages, even Jesus' temptation. What was Satan basically trying to do? Trying to get him to uh, compromise uh, to sin to get the kingdom now rather than trust God. What did Judas focus on? He wanted that 30 uh, talents of silver. Um, 1 John 2, 13 through 15 describes uh, the basic struggles that w- we have like this. 1 John 2, 13 through 15. Um, it says, that's not... A- 15 through 17. Excuse me. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not him for in him for all that's in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the world from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Um, Psalm 73. Maybe you remember that Psalm where the psalmist is like looking at the wicked, and he's like, man. All they do all the time is prosper. They're being—they're so evil, and yet, they're, they're, nothing seems to go wrong for them. And he's about to give up on God as a result. And what's what's the struggle? He's 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 struggling with his life. Life is—he's thinking in too short a—he uh, has too short a perspective. He's thinking just about now and not seeing the eternal. And so it's like this basic lie that we're tempted to believe—that life is all about now. And this m- makes us focus on the wrong things and often infects and poisons the way that we talk. So if we listen to the way we talk, often what it reveals is that w- we're, we're talking in a way that um, I guess is based on a lie that, that life is all about now. And so Tripp breaks that lie down into four statements. He says, first, we're tempted to believe physical things are permanent things. So uh, we talk as if these things are the most urgent. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny as you get older to realize how quick it is, right? How not permanent it is. Like all this stuff that seems so important when you're young, you're like, um, yeah, it's just so so quick, you know? Um, I was thinking we haven't owned a home since we were so young. And um, now if we own a home, we'll probably own it for like uh, 10, 15 years or 20 years or something like that. And you know what? We're, we're, we're fine. We're, fit, you know, almost 50 and, and we're fine. But we're so, when you're young, these things can feel so important. Like, I've got to own a home. I've got to own a home. And you're like, wow, even, it's not really even owning, is it, actually? Because then you die and somebody else is. But it feels so permanent when you talk about it. We're tempted to believe physical bread is the only bread. So it's easy to act like what we see is all there is to reality. Um, we're tempted to believe human success is defined by the amount of bread you possess. <laughs> How much stuff you get is, is, is success. Um, that was the rich uh, fool, right, in Luke, where he's like, everybody thinks this guy is so, uh, so wise because he's got all this stuff, and God's like, you're a fool because you, you know, you're you acting like this is all there is to life, and tonight you die. And, and then what? Um, when success really is loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, it would be interesting, just in your gut, like in your gut to just test you, you meet a really poor person, like he wears ugly clothes, he, he kind of smells, but he loves God with his whole heart and loves his neighbor as himself. And you meet a super rich guy. Who are you tempted to, tempted to think is more successful? And even, you know, maybe want to listen to his advice. That's a good sign of worldliness. <laughs> actually, because that's not how God would look at them at all. And that means we're believing this lie, that success is defined by the amount of physical bread you possess. It was sad. In Africa, sometimes they would talk about who were the elders in the local churches, and it would often be all the wealthy wealthy guys um, or the businessmen. Like a businessman comes in, he's automatically going to be an elder. And so that can infect, infect the church. You know, it's good for a church... So, you, Um, yeah, it might be good for a church sometimes to have godly elders who uh, didn't graduate with their master's degree or even maybe didn't graduate university but are super godly and wise because that's definitely possible, right? (laughs) Right? And uh, it would be a good test, again, for us if the Lord brings up some of those kinds of guys to say, What do we believe about success, actually? Um, And what do we believe about how godliness works in terms of how we respond to somebody like that? Um, And then fourth, we're tempted to believe that life is found in physical bread, that somehow life can be found outside a relationship with God. Um, And this is a real danger we face. Tripp says, It's easy to buy into the lie lie that life can be found in human acceptance, possessions, and position. It's so easy to have your life controlled by dreams of success in your career. It's so easy to believe that nothing satisfies like romantic love. It's so easy to fall into pursuing the idle images of Western culture, big house, nice car, great vacations. When we do this, we quit feeding on Christ. Our devotional life begins to suffer. We pray less, and when we do, we pray more selfishly. We find our schedule doesn't leave much time for ministry, and we spend more, much more time with our colleagues at work than we do with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Functionally, we're feeding on the world's bread, not on Christ. Our whole life will be determined by the bread we pursue. Yeah, so we don't want to. We really. Uh, this is why this Sunday we were praising God for the faith that's here at Cornerstone Bible Church. And I was thinking, it really is. I think we need to recognize that it really is a miracle to have faith. And that, um, in a sense, here in America, we have it harder <laughs> when it comes to faith. I um, mean, it's always a miracle, but I, I think sometimes these lies that Satan tells us about now are easier to believe here than uh, than when I was living in Africa. I even being here the last couple of years, I'm like, wow, it, it's, there's parts of the Christian life that are actually harder here. Uh, because of just how easily deluded we get um, into believing something that's not real. But what we're doing as we counsel or or disciple people and think about communication with them, we're trying to ask, what does the way you communicate reveal about what you want Jesus to be and what you're living for? What does it say about what you want most right now? Because a lot of times you listen to us, and what does the way we talk say about what we want most now? Uh, It says, hey, I want... Everything to go <laughs> uh, my way, and I just I want my life to just be easy, and that's not what now's about. So you're gonna have as forever to, for it to be easy. Uh, that's called heaven. Right now is the only chance you have to suffer and glorify God through suffering. You'll never have the chance to glorify God through suffering for all eternity. So right now is the only chance you have to do that. And, and so right now is not just about having it easy. We have this great hope for the future. Trip goes to 1 Peter 1, three through five and talks about this inheritance that we have, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved in heaven for you, which is exciting That's the future that we have, but what is now about? It's about something bigger than just um, having it easy, and this is what it's about. You, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Tripp says, God's willing to compromise your comfort right now to give you something better. So he'll take you through trials to refine your faith so that your faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes back. Um, I love this quote. He says, Living in the present is about something much deeper than getting up in the morning with a smile, much more than a satisfying job, romantic weekends with your wife, encouraging friendships, well-mannered children, a nice house, and a good community. It's more than a pastor who really seems to care about you and more than a budget that seems to be working. Peter's point is that God is willing to compromise things like these to produce something greater, fuller, and deeper in us, genuine faith. This is what God is after in the experiences that make us wonder if he really loves us, if he hears our prayers, experiences that cause us to envy other believers, or maybe even people who don't know him. Why are those experiences sent our way? Because God is not done with us yet. He's at work giving us the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Rather than grumbling and complaining and doubting the faithfulness of God, we should be able to respond with with worship. So the problem. Um, is that often we don't really want that close relationship with God. We actually would just prefer, um, just to have it easy for a little bit. I, 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 like he says, in my opinion, in the heart of every sinner is a desire that life would be a resort. You pay your money, you get whatever you want, whenever you want it. Um, but that's not how God designed life to work. Um. So here's the problem we face, according to Tripp, why things go wrong. He says, God blesses us to point us to Jesus, but we start worshiping the blessing. And when we don't get what we want, we get upset with God or others, and so we have to look at the way we communicate and ask, what does it reveal about who I'm living for? Because um, if we're really living for now, and we think, man, life is all about now, we're gonna be in, we're gonna be in big trouble when we don't get what we want, and it's gonna show up in the way we talk. But if we're living for for something deeper than just now, we really want a deep relationship with Jesus, then all of our problems become great places to know and grow in fellowship with the One who is life. Um, so. One big sign that you're, you, you're, you're not really living for Christ is, when, uh, is in the way that you talk. And then he goes on to say, it shows up when the gospel doesn't comfort you anymore. So he tells a story about a lady in a difficult marriage. And he's like, yeah, let me talk to you about God's love and what he's doing for you in this situation. And she's like, don't tell me anymore that God loves me. I want a husband who loves me. And um, what's happening there is, of course, she's hurting, but what's happening there is um, that trial is revealing to her what, is most, what really is truthfully most important in her life. And that's why difficulties are helpful. They reveal what really matters to us and where we're actually finding life and joy and where we're putting our hope. And so if you look at the difficult times, sometimes we feel like complaining is the only option, but it's not if our hearts are right and we're following Jesus for the right reasons. Um, that's part of what's exciting about following Jesus and having your heart right is because, honestly, any situation that you get into is an opportunity to glorify him. Um, and he goes to Habakkuk chapter 2, um, Verses seven, uh, ch- chapter three, verses seventeen through nineteen, um, where Habakkuk describes really what we want our hearts to be like. He says, "Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places." is this how we would respond if our dreams crumbled and uh i'm praying it would be because christ is our life and um our words Tripp wants us to understand are uh, are really a good indication one of the best indications of who we worship and what we love he finishes the chapter by saying our words are shaped by the dreams that reside in our hearts They're determined by the bread that we're seeking. And so even as you disciple your kids, uh, one of the things when when you listen to the way they talk, you can be asking them, what does the way that you're talking reveal about who you love? And what does it reveal about what you're living for? And then as you're discipling young moms, honestly, the (laughs) the way they talk about their kids, what does it reveal about what does the way they talk reveal about um, what they're living for and, 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 and who they're worshiping? And please help them understand it is actually a significant issue. So like a young mom going around the whole day complaining about how difficult it is to be a mom, that's a big deal. <laughs> that's a big deal. Because it reveals, that, uh, it reveals who she's worshiping. Um, same for a, a husband who's coming home and, and being rough on his wife because she's not and his kids because they're not treating him the way that she he thinks he deserves. That's a big deal because it's about because it's really about idolatry and it's really about who's God to you and it's really about um, it's really about who you actually love, not just who you say you love when you're at church, but who you actually uh, love most and what you want. Most. But yeah, communication, chapter six, Paul Tripp. Any um thoughts or questions? Will? In regards to the words that you say to one another, I think it's pretty common in regards to the week. You just talk about maybe the good things that happen. Maybe that's familiar or maybe that's just sort of pattern. Yeah.